The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This is from Isaiah 61, 1-11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caroline. I want to introduce to you my twin brother. It's a good friend of mine, Britton Wood. Uh, many of you know that um, before uh, our church existed, I worked over across the street at Vanderbilt University as a campus pastor, and uh, Britton has served in that capacity before, and now he is the regional coordinator who is over all of these campus ministries in Alabama, Tennessee, and a little part of Kentucky. Um, and I always enjoy having these guys come in like Britton and, and Richie Sessions, who some of you may know or have heard preach as well, to, to deliver the word for us. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Stacy. Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word uh, as we read these things that don't make sense to us. Uh, And as we wake up every morning trying to make sense of our life and what we're supposed to do and who we're supposed to be, we need your truth to come in uh, and not just just teach us but change us. We need your Holy Spirit to do that because our hearts are hard. It's hard to change. It's hard to learn. So Holy Spirit, please be with us now and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to start today by actually talking about a weird moment that we all experience Uh, whether you identify as a Christian or not, 
This kind of mundane moment that's a part of almost all of our days every day. You've experienced it probably already today. And it's the moment of looking at yourself in the mirror. So what happens, I wanna go frame by frame through what happens when you stand in front of a mirror. When you stand in front of a mirror, something happens. The first thing is you're presenting yourself for examination, right? You're examining some part of your body, your hair, your face, your skin, your tummy, whatever it is. And you're presenting yourself to an audience, a judge, in this case the judge is your own eyes, right, for evaluation. And the goal is to be evaluated and to be found acceptable. It's a mundane moment we all go through all the time. It totally makes sense. But I want you to think about that, that there's a presentation of yourself, there's an audience you ask to evaluate you, hoping for an acceptable or a satisfactory verdict. What we're after is not just to be found satisfactory, right? At first, maybe you think, that's what I want. I want to be found approved or satisfactory. That's actually not what we're after. What we're after is the rest that comes if you're found satisfactory, right? We want to look in the mirror and see that the work is done. It's okay. It's over. That's what we're after. We're after the rest. And it seems silly to talk about, but the reason I bring that up is because that dynamic actually captures the entire human experience. It's amazing. We created this thing called social media, and social media is another outlet for the exact same thing. I present a part of my life, whether it's pictures or words, to an audience, ask them to evaluate it, and find me worthy, right? That's what it's all about from beginning to end. This dynamic of presenting something of yourself to an audience for an evaluation of verdict is actually the fundamental act of being human. We're doing it all time in every sphere of our life. That's what every week is. That's what your calendar is and your schedule is, all the things you have to do. Make something of myself in order to present it to a judge. It's really a collection of judges, a variety of judges. There's some strangers that you want to see you a certain way, some potential employers, your spouse, a potential loved one or romantic partner, your parents, right? There's a whole host of judges, maybe God himself. You do what you can this week. You present yourself to these judges seeking an evaluation. But here's what we want. It's not simply that we're declared acceptable, approved, finally, there's no more work to be done. We want the rest that comes after that, right? And here's the thing. That's what we're going through every week, and until you get it, you're not free. Until you get that approval and the rest that comes after it, you're not free. And because we have to keep waiting until we get it, until you get it, you can't really focus on anything else besides yourself, right? You got to produce that life, that, that, form of, that way of living, that way you look, whatever it is. You got to produce something of yourself. Even, your good, even our good works are like, because I need to be better so I can be okay with the version of me that I've become. So even our good stuff is ultimately self-oriented, right? So until we get that verdict, we're not free. Until we get that verdict, we actually can't think beyond ourselves, even our good works are about us, so we can't be really, truly helpful in meaningful ways. And lastly, until we get that verdict, we're not happy. We're not full. We're just anxious 
all the time terrorized about the next thing that we're supposed to be or the higher level. This is how bad it's gotten as now we're quantifying our rest. We can't even rest anymore. We're tracking our sleep and we're tracking our workouts. And now we can't even have fun without measuring ourselves and trying to be better so that someone, whether it's you or your CrossFit trainer or your Strava friends, right, admire you and say, finally, you're done. The work is done. You know, the gospel is good news that always sounds too good to be true. But what Isaiah is telling Israel right here is that the anointed one of God will come to make Israel free from that. And then they'll finally become helpful because they won't have to think about themselves anymore. And lastly, happy. Friends, he's talking about Jesus from beginning to end. And what I want you to know is Jesus has come to give you freedom And once he gives you freedom, you'll realize you can be helpful for the first time. And you'll be happy. Jesus has come to give you freedom and make you helpful and make you happy. This is good news. So that first point, freedom. Here's my question. How did last week go? You looked in your life's mirror, Saturday night, Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night. Not just the physical mirror, but your life's mirror, your your evaluation. How did last week go? Did you get it all done? And not only did you get it all done, did you get it all done with character? Were you kind? Were you generous? Did you have lots of margins for people in need? Were you forgiving? Did you eliminate all the bitterness? How did it go? Did you get all the work done? Did you just crush parenting last week, finally? Do you feel like the work is done? Right? Here's my, the second question. What's your plan this week? Are you going to double down on last week's strategy? Because it didn't work. Do you think it's going to work this week? It's not going to work again. And, and the, the theological word for going back to that process every week and doubling down on trying to finally be the right type of person, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your religion, whether it's in your parenting, and hoping that at some point during that week, during that month, at the end of the year, at the end of whatever season is you vision, there's an end, that someone will look at you, maybe you will look at you, your parents will look at you, maybe God will look at you and say, you finished, the work is done, you've completed it, now rest. It didn't work last week, y'all, it's not going to work this week either. God, what you need to know is God made this dynamic the very definition of being human because his intention in the garden from the beginning was that actually we live in his presence, we live before him as our audience, he's our audience, and that he'd be delighted in us, that he finds us acceptable and we experience the freedom and joy of that delight of never having to work to prove ourselves. And the heart of sin is that humanity sought to find identity outside of God's gaze and delight, and now apart from him, all of us, every day, with all the things we're doing. We're looking at ourselves in our life's mirror, hoping that we finally produced an acceptable version of myself, and the theological word for that is slavery. And the reason that we feel like we can't afford to rest The reason that we cannot rest is because we're slaves. That's a slave mentality. A slave feels, I do not have 
the freedom to do nothing. I don't have the freedom to not spend this time right now bettering myself. Our anxiety and our stress has nothing to do with the volume of the stuff you have to do. It doesn't have anything to do with how long your list is. It has everything to do with the reason why you do it. Because nothing we do is in freedom. Nothing we do is driven out of delight and love. It's all done in fear, always afraid that we're going to be found wanting, lacking, less than. So next week, right, we're going to get it right for the first time. But you won't. We're afraid of who we'd be found to be if we don't serve the masters of our age, whatever it is. And this is why when Jesus began his ministry, he did it by opening up Isaiah 61 and reading these verses in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's talking about himself. Isaiah was talking about Jesus. And Jesus opens this verse and reads to the Jews, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and open the prison of those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come to set you free from this week. Freedom is not the absence of constraints. That's not what freedom is. That's a nonsense idea. Nobody advocates for that. The most progressive philosophy professor at Vanderbilt doesn't believe in that because we all parent with lots of constraints. What freedom is, the freedom that we're all after, is the absence of the need to justify yourself. That's freedom. That's when life becomes a playground instead of a proving ground. Right? Freedom is no longer living in the minute-by-minute oppressive dynamic of making something of yourself so that some audience will give you the verdict that you want and you can rest. This is exactly what Paul's talking about to the church at Galatia when he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free, so don't again submit to the yoke of slavery. And the yoke of slavery that he's talking about is actually going back to the religious law to prove yourself. But y'all, the yoke of slavery is not just religious law. It's all the things that we feel compelled to do that we believe if we did a sufficient enough job in those things, we'd have rest. And it didn't work last week and it won't work this week. And you're not close and we're all slaves. And Jesus has come to give you freedom. And freedom feels like rest. They feel like the same thing because they are the same thing. This is why the writer of Hebrews actually calls Jesus our rest. The passage in Isaiah, these words, proclaiming the year of the Lord, is a reference to earlier in the Old Testament, Leviticus 25, and this idea that God actually, in, in Israel's kind of annual, their, their liturgical life, right, their daily and weekly and monthly and yearly life, he said, here's what I want you to do. Every seven days, I want you to rest for a day. Every seven years, I want you to rest for a year. And every seven times seven years, I want you to rest for a year and forgive all the debts in the land. And what he was doing is he embedded in their habits regular reminders that he is the God that brings freedom and rest for no other reason than it's, than that it's his character to bring freedom and rest. They didn't earn the rest he offered them. He said, no, no, no. It's the rest I give you 
regardless of the debts you have. And if your debts won't let you rest, then forgive everybody of their debts so that you can rest. So he embedded into their, into their life regular patterns of rest to remind them who he is and what he's come to do. And rest means, it actually means two things. It means both not working and also not being afraid of the consequences of not working. So the question is, how does he give us that rest? How do we have that kind of rest that's actually true freedom? Because we feel this unending compulsion to make some acceptable version of ourselves. We're trying to work off our guilt, work off our inadequacy, because there's this thing in all of us about me that testifies to me that I'm not right, and I'm trying to work it off. Here's how Jesus gives you freedom. When Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, it says this, he who knew no sin became your sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. Paul's actually drawing from Isaiah 61 right here where the prophet celebrates that God has wrapped me in the robe of his righteousness. This is what it means. We look in our mirror and we see all that we don't like about ourselves, but God looks at you and he sees Jesus' righteousness cloaked around you. And he says, man, you know what? Your work is done. Rest. I couldn't ask any more of you. God's not going to judge you about last week. He judged Jesus for that. He's not going to judge you over the fact that we're going to botch it this next week. He already judged Jesus for that. He's judged you on the basis of how Jesus has performed. It's the cross, friends. That's freedom. It's at the cross. So if you're like, man, I didn't get it right this week, don't go back to the law of like, I'm going to double my efforts to get it right. Go back to the cross. He was rejected for all that was rejectable about us, and we're justified on the basis of all that's lovely about him. A few points of application before we move on. First of all, what that means for some of us is you need to think about the audiences you live in front of. You have a whole host of them. You're asking for judgment from them. And we keep hoping that those judges will absolve us. So the last seven years I did campus ministry at Stanford University. They love the fact they have the lowest acceptance rate in the country. Sorry, Vanderbilt students. I went to Vanderbilt. I'm on your team. But here's how, here's how uppity Stanford is. After they proved that they have the lowest acceptance rates in the country this year, they came out and said, we're not going to announce our acceptance rate anymore. That's the ultimate snooty move right there. They were like, we're beyond that. We're beyond that now. But here's the thing about Stanford students. It's an incredibly unhealthy place because they had an audience they were trying to please with their entire lives for the first 18 years, the most selective admissions board in the country. And they defined themselves by what that admissions board thought of them. And they got approval from that admissions board and it didn't absolve them. They came to campus and they were still slaves and they actually became less, even less healthy people looking for another master to serve. Who's the audience you're serving? They can't absolve you. Is it yourself? Is it your parents? Is it the culture around us? And here's the thing is, once you're free from that audience, once you actually step away from that audience and into the presence of God, it's not gonna make you harsh towards those people or resent them. 
you'll actually finally be free to love them and have compassion on them. You resent them now because they're your judges and you've asked them to be your judges. But once you step away, it doesn't make you harsh, it makes you kind. So who's your audience? Consider your audience. And here's the other thing. Some of us have have forgotten who the good judge is. So our audience is God, but we've forgotten his character. He's the one who judges you according to the merit of Christ, not the merit of your week. And you, we keep thinking, well, the way to get back on track and to find rest is to come to him through doubling down on doing better. But the Bible says the law cannot give you rest. Did you know the Bible says that the law of God cannot give you rest, but Jesus can and he does. So come to him through the cross. Everything we've been doing up until this moment has been about making something of ourselves so that someone can see it and say, well done, and then hopefully then we can rest. We can enjoy this afternoon and not think about what we have to do and be afraid of not getting toward it. Jesus has come to give you freedom and rest, friends. You're free in Jesus. Now, here's what this means. If everything up to this point has been about trying to find rest and freedom, all of your studies, all your work, all your parenting, all your yoga, whatever it is, well, if it's true that we're completely free in Jesus because God has declared us righteousness because he is our justification and he's our righteousness, here's what this means. All of your time and resources just got freed up because we we're about to spend the entire week next week working toward that. Now you got an entire week free. It's all at disposal to reallocate for different purposes now. The work is done. The, the, the verdict is passed. So you have a lot of time and money and energy on your hands. Because the plan tomorrow is to use our job and our, out, and our workout and our parenting and our school and our fitness and our religious observances to try and justify ourselves. That's taken care of. So what do you do now? Jesus hasn't just come to make you free. He's also come to make you helpful. In verse 4 and forward, Isaiah begins to describe the changed lives of the people that are liberated by the Messiah. They rebuild the city. They restore ruins. When the Bible talks about the city, Zion, when it talks about Jerusalem, that's a stand-in for the people of God. They're not thinking about the geographical city. The Israelites did at that moment. But that was always an example or a stand-in for the people of God, for us as a community. So when it talks about restoring the people of God, what he's saying is when you finally have rest and freedom in the Messiah, when he has liberated us from sin, we become a group of friends. We become a community. It's actually the busyness of our self-justifying pursuit that's filled with all the little comparisons we're making with each other that's filled with all the threats we feel by other people's success. It's the busyness of all that that's the reason we're not a real community. You can't be friends with people you're competing with. And you can't be friends with people whom you need status from. Oh, you can be with them and you can be charming, but you're not friends because you're working on yourself. Once the need to find status and the need to justify yourself is taken away, guess what? We get to be friends again. The people of God's reconstituted. The city gets rebuilt. We become a real community. If we're always working to be justified, we maneuver in all of our relationships and we lie, manipulate, and we transact. 
And we aim for the people that we can get things from. We avoid the people that are attacks on us. Unless you don't have to prove yourself anymore, then we can be friends and enjoy each other. Zion is restored. This thing called community happens. And look at the kind of community it is. In verse 5, you start to see outsiders, foreigners, non-Israelites be a part of the community. It's a community that welcomes people that never belonged, that enjoys outsiders simply because it's fun to include more. Because it's the heart of God, we see all throughout the Gospels in Jesus' ministry, to see the person who is without friends, the person who is with need, the people who have been excluded because of class or education level or moral missteps or race or lack of social skills, and include them. Because it's the heart of God, and it delights the Father who loves you. Verse 6 actually says, this community are going to be called the priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. This means that we don't just become friends with one another, but also people around us become friends with God. Priesthood is a very simple concept when it says that, that God's people will be called his priests. Priesthood is nothing more than networking. Networking is, I know someone of significance that you don't know. You don't want to introduce yourself without any relationship, but I have relational capital, and I'll let you trade on my relational capital to get to know them. That's what priesthood is. The freedom that you have in Jesus now is so good that you instinctively want others to know him. That's what being a priest means. And this is the evangelism, weird word, freaks us all out. Everybody feels guilty now because you don't do it, right? It's the most natural human process we've ever thought it. Here's the joke. How do you tell if someone does CrossFit or is a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Don't fault them. The reason they tell you is because they love it. It's what we all do. We want the people around us to know about the things we love, and we want them to experience the things that we love. Evangelism is an incredibly normal human response. And that's the beginning of what it means to be the priest of God. It means sharing the gospel, this good news of the freedom we've been longing for with the people around us, both in word and in deed, that we bear the character of Christ in this freedom, both in our words, but also with our actions. We embody the gospel. We begin to take oppression from other people, even if they don't deserve it, and give them freedom in all different forms. This is why the church is called the body of Christ is because we're actually embodying this good news in a physical way to our neighbors, to our friends, and to strangers all around us at all times. It's not for the margins of our time. It's for all times. You know, this is the freedom of love. This is not the like weird churchy activity of the time that I try to do evangelism or service. We're only begin going to be able to love in this way though if you have the freedom to do it. If you're busy justifying yourself this next week, you won't have the freedom to love this way. And John tells us, he talks about Jesus' love this way. He says, remember, perfect love casts out fear. And it's that constant fear that keeps us from the freedom of love. And that's why you, when you realize your justification is in Jesus, there's no more work to do. And it's not in your schedule, and it's not in your performance, then fear evaporates and you're free to love. And it's fun. When we experience freedom in Jesus, we're finally free to be helpful. 
And then lastly, you get to be happy. Jesus has come to give you freedom. He's come to make you helpful. He's come to make you happy. Isaiah 61 closes with the prophet speaking on behalf of God's people, which is the church, and it closes with rejoicing. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exult in my God because he clothed me in salvation, wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a decked out bridegroom, like an adorned bride. And as the earth brings forth sprouts and as gardeners cause things to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. It ends in celebration. In some ways, this whole passage is a microcosm of the Christian life. Jesus gives you freedom, gives you the capacity to love others, and you end up rejoicing at the end. When you meet Jesus, he frees you. Everyone lives under the law, slaving away, and he offers you freedom. And the grace is so counterintuitive to everything we know that it takes a lifetime-long process to test and actually enjoy that freedom to actually believe that this week that you don't have to meet some standard by which you can feel better by yourself. And the more you taste it, the more you enjoy the noble and humble calling of broadcasting his character to your neighbors, to any neighbors. And the the existential result at the end is praise, it's celebration. Just like evangelism is actually a really natural human phenomenon, so is worship. Know the right religious word, don't always know if you feel it at church. But actually, no one has to teach you how to worship. We do it all the time because worship is nothing more than expressing the great things about the things you love. That's worship. The word praise or worship or exult sounds religious. We think it's weird, but it's something that we're all familiar with. When you read a great book and talk about how good it is, it's the same thing. When we scream at a game about our team, same thing. When you take a picture of something because you think this is great, the world needs to know about it, same thing. Nobody has to teach you about worship. You've witnessed something great and you have the impulse to notify the world and even reflect back to the thing itself how great it is. It's not odd. It's not weird. It's natural. And not only is it instinctual, worship itself is part of the enjoyment of the thing. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise doesn't just express but completes the enjoyment of that thing. It's actually the appointed consummation of enjoying something. The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing for to fully enjoy is to glorify. This text, but also all of Scripture ends in celebration. The final scene in Revelation is a party. The marriage feast of the Lamb, a celebration of God about his love for his bride, the church. And we're about to come to this table. Friends, what this table says is the work is done. And what this table says is because the work is done, there's a party to be had. And so God in his wisdom has said, until I come again, I don't want you just to remember the work is done by hearing it. I want to use your bodies and I want to remind your bodies too that the work is done because communication happens through all kinds of different channels. We don't just need to hear the words. We need to use our bodies. And he says every week, I want you to drink a little wine. I want you to eat a little bread. 
with your body so that your body knows that the work is done, the price has been paid. You are free, you're righteous, you're justified in Jesus, not for anything that you've done, but because he's gracious and he's good. So rest. Here's what's also amazing about today. Most of us forgot this is the beginning of the week. Do you know what you're doing? You're doing something so incredibly countercultural by being here right now, by sitting under God's word, by coming to the table at the beginning of the week. See, in the Old Testament, God's people rest, worked for six days, rested at the end. God gave them that format to understand there is some work to be done and there's rest at the end. But when Jesus came and fulfilled all of that work at the law, Something happened in the first century. God's people started resting on the first day of the week. You are starting the week by saying, I don't have to work to be justified. That's good news. Today is the beginning of your week. You haven't thought about work yet. Isn't that sweet? God wants you to know now, this morning, the work is done. Start that way. And then go enjoy the freedom of the week and love people with the character that he's loved you. There's freedom. There's helpfulness and there's happiness in that. Let's pray.